0: God, as we come before Your Word this morning, I know there is so much here, uh, it, it's difficult even to know where to begin. And I just pray that Your Spirit guides us through the Word this morning, it directs our path, and it leads us to more deeply love what we see here in Your Word. We ask this in Jesus' name, Amen. So yeah, just to let you know off the bat, if you didn't hear what I was saying in the background. And is my microphone off? Kurt? Can you hear me? Okay, good. We're only going to get through the first four verses today. And I don't even know how long that will take, but we'll see. By the way, in Sunday School, we're going through the Gospel of Mark. And actually, uh, you missed quite a bit if you missed Sunday School this Lord's Day, because as Bruce was in chapter 6 of Mark at the conclusion, really he helped draw out of the text the fact that there is a violation in one sense, of the Second Commandment going on. But the next time I teach in the Gospel of Mark is chapter 10. And Mark chapter 10, it's one of my favorite passages in Scripture. It's one of my favorite chapters in the whole entirety of the Bible. But one of the stories that I love in that uh, moment in the Gospel of Mark is the rich young ruler, or as ESV calls him, the, the rich young man. And he he comes up to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? And I bring him up because we are in the Ten Commandments of the Scriptures. And this chapter of the Bible has been wrongly understood misunderstood throughout church history. Frankly, it's led to reformation at times. This is a chapter of the Bible in which we need quite a bit of wisdom, but we need quite a bit of understanding, which hopefully the Lord will provide us through His Spirit in order to navigate this chapter well. And so here He was, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? And really, He had come to Christ thinking that His works would save Him. Actually, for Jesus first acknowledges or asks the question, why do you call me good? No one is good but God. Not denying His divinity, but actually saying to that kind of individual who wants to say, oh, Jesus has good teachings. Jesus has good morals. Jesus came up with some good ideas. Jesus won't accept that kind of lukewarm belief upon Him. If you actually want to say anything is good of Jesus, you have to accept the fact that He is the Son of the Father of the very God, that He is Lord of God, God of God, true light of true light. And so He makes that clear to start with this young man. And then He starts going down, really, the second table of the law. And you just see the young man, He's going, yep, got that, done that, check, check. And the young man is overjoyed. He just stopped before the covetousness. He skips over that one of coveting, but he's just overjoyed and he, he proudly this, with all youthful exuberance says, all these things I have done. And Jesus great. Actually, I'm forgetting an important point. Jesus looked at him and loved him. The passage says, and loved him. In his response, he says, great, and go sell all your possessions. Give me to the poor and follow me. And the young man walked away upset because this sin of the law was too hard to do. And so why I begin with that story is the fact that as we approach these passage, as we approach this chapter, we might fall under the temptation of saying, I don't really have a problem with that sin. Or I don't really have a problem with this sin. Or you don't really have in about mouth this sin. That person over there. Or that person over here. And if we go into this chapter with that hawk, we will be falling into a great mistake. One that the publican fell into, one that the rich young ruler fell into. And so we want to navigate this law wisely. And so we need a grid. And of all the things of Calvin's theology, John Calvin's theology often considered the father of the reform movement, maybe I found the most helpful thing is the grid he provides in looking at the Ten Commandments. not that Calvin invented it. Actually, I believe the fullness of chapter 19 and chapter 20 will teach the wisdom of what this grid that Calvin laid out. But he said when you look at the law, basically, you want to look at it in three different ways. Not that these are the only ways, but these are the most helpful ways. The first being, look at it civically. This was a community it was brought to. Look at the law civically. Look at it in a big-picture macro level. If the world followed this law perfectly, there would be no debate over, for instance, the Second Amendment. People wouldn't have a debate over gun ownership because guns would never be used in a way that was, would kill humans or damage humans because if we live out the law, we would never do malice against neighbor. Or we would never have to have locks on our doors. Or we would never have to see the kinds of decay and debauchery and gross degradation that we see in our society. And so it's helpful to look at the law civically minded. Look at any one of these laws, civically minded. But there is a second way to look at the law. And I'm going to give you, even though my dyslexic self will struggle to say it, I'm going to give you the theological term and gonna make it a lot easier for you to understand. It in a second. The second use of the law is the pedological use of the law. What is that? I don't want to keep saying that throughout the series. What that is sometimes called the teacher, but I think even more helpful is this is the, not the just y'all made Jesus law or understanding of the law, but we all made Jesus law. We all need Jesus. That looking at the law drives us to the pathway of grace. That we just need to be like the, the tax collector and cry out to the Lord, Lord, save me. Save me from the slavery of sin. Save me from this reality and this body of sin, O oh Lord. That's the second use of the law. And so I'm just going to say, we all need Jesus when I, throughout this series. Is the other there's too confusing, too theologically heading. If you know it, that's great. But it's a tongue twister. The third use of the law is called the normative use of the law. Easier to say, but again, difficult to understand. So, good news is Calvin on this one agreed. He came up with a very good way to consider this third use of the law. So we so far looked at it civically. We can look at the law civically. We can look at the law to drive us to the pathway of grace, drive us to the cross, drive us to the mercies, drive us to salvation our Lord and save us from slavery. And the third way he calls the mirror. And let me illustrate the mirror this way. My wife and I, this year, have gone to, to weddings together. I went to a third wedding yesterday, but my wife did not join me. And when I got ready for the wedding, as I put all the clothing and attire on, what did I stand in front? A mirror. I stood in front of the mirror, I put on the pillows that I thought best, and I walked down the stairs. And my wife said, is that what you're going to wear? And that's the kind of love and encouragement that thrives in the household. (laughs) Is that what you're gonna (laughs) wear? And while she did have some say on my clothing in the previous few weddings, because she attended with me, she has a foot problem, which I got it slightly wrong. In men's Bible study, she's got an infection in her foot, she took a tetanus shot, and I accidentally said she took antibiotics, Apparently, it's beetle spit that was put on her infection. She was very upset that I misrepresented what she has. And so, I asked my wife about beetle spit on her foot after the service. But, anyways, she did not feel like walking around on this foot as it was hurting her because it took her three months to go to the hospital and go get it checked out after she stepped on something. And so, is that what you're going to wear? And the reality is, I said, yes. This I'm, I'm not going back up. I'm not changing. You have no authority over my outfit because this outfit's fine. I am going to attend the wedding in this outfit. And Monica, Monica was my she was my plus one and substitute of my wife, and she had no problems with my outfit, or at least she didn't articulate it. So we had a wonderful time. This is the third use of the law. God has a name. And while I could discount maybe what my wife thinks about my appearance before I go to a wedding, that she's not going to. When God's mirror shows me something, shows a flaw I need to work on. That's the third use of the law. So we have the law in its civic understatement. We have the law in its driving us to the pathway of Christ, driving us to the cross. And we have the law that is the mirror from God by which we see what we were created to be, an image of God, and we say, I need more. I need to desire to look more like my Father in Heaven has desired me to look like. I want to look more like image of Jesus Christ. I want to be blessed by the Spirit and be more faithful in my life. And so as we go through the law, those are really the three lenses that we are going to look at here throughout our series. Now, when it comes to the law, I, Kevin B. Young's book talks about this, because this is something that commonly a lot of theologians have picked on and it's picked up on in American culture, and it's just a helpful thing to understand how we got here in America. I know that's been a thought. That better have been a thought in your mind lately. How did we get here in America? For decades, as Americans have been pulled, more Americans know the ingredients to a big man, every single ingredient then can name the Ten Commandments, whereas as the Hebrew puts it, the ten words from God. The summary of the law. You want to look at our civic society? You want to look at the problems that are abounding? The debauchery, the decay of society? That's because more of us are an expert of all the ingredients on a big man they can actually articulate the Ten Commandments. If that's someone and maybe you've come here today you don't know to take commandments this is the building blocks this is the foundational level of how god wants us to be in our world having his moral compass in one sense yes there is there's there's a total of 613 laws but in this refined and distilled ten, in this is found a, a key understanding of how to look at the world morally and if you came into the series not understanding them or not knowing them, but you know the recipe to the Big Mac, I would encourage you that through this series to, to be in the law, to realize that's, this is more of the recipe of what we're called to be than a recipe of a fast food restaurant. So, let me catch up to my end. Another thing about the law. And actually, the Hebrew rabbis, I've been following Jewish commentaries throughout this. And the Jewish rabbis pick up at this in a higher percentage than even the Christians. do. Christian theology. Where God is saying and giving the law matters. What do I mean by that? God did not wait to reveal His law in the Holy Land yes most of us know for instance a war broke out in israel yesterday war broke out because hamas did not respect the borders of israel broke into the borders of israel and kidnapping and killing its citizen unarmed civilians where things happen now and jewish rabbi a christian theologian point out this law is given not in the holy land This law is given in Sinai. It's given in the wilderness. And the reality of that means that this is not a law just for the people who believe. This is a law for the world, whether the world wants to receive it or not. Whether the world wants to hear it or not. I don't care what politicians believe. I care the fact that God wants this law to reign, not just from sea to shining sea, but before the law. He desires it. This is what we were made to live out in our midst. This is the pathway to a world of peace. We sing that little Christian hymn about there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. A peace on earth begins with obeying God's law. This is for everyone. I don't care that I could go down to a street corner like I used to in Vegas and have people shout me down. It's still for them, even if they will not receive, even if they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And so now let's look at this first commandment. First off, who's articulating the commandment? That's important. Is it Moses reciting, or God directly the same? Look at the first two verses. Who said this? God does. This comes from the mouth of God. That's important. This comes from the mouth of God. And when it comes to the first commandment, it is different than all the others. It has this different feature than all the others. In the next nine, they are going to call for an action of some kind. But the first commandment, is a question of priority of our relationship with God. It is uniquely relational. Yes, there are components that are relational in all of them, but those are more action-based, whereas this one uniquely stands apart. And God is saying, I am a God who is primary. You shall have no other gods before me. I get priority of relationship. He doesn't use these commandments to say he's the only relationship, but he is the ultimate priority of relationship. He's why my wife can say of my look to the mirror, I don't like what you look like. And I can say, man, she's not good with me. I can ignore that. But his mirror, he's got priority of relationship. I can't say that. He gets priority over and against everything else. Over and against my wife, over and against my children, if it has to be, even divide household, he is to get my priority. And our relationship to him is to be one of unique loyalty. God hates rivals in our relationship with him. And so let us pick up the mirror and ask ourselves some questions. What are the things you're most looking forward to doing as you leave here today? The Lord's Day. What are the things you're most looking to to doing this week? Are you planning to read up and study something? What are, you, what are you going to invest your time in studying? Headlines? These sorts of things? What's going to give priority? What are you going to give greatest significance to this week? And the problem is, when we pick up that meeting, we have a lot of work. There's a lot of blemish. I know I'm willing to answer for myself when I look at even just... From week to week, how many things that just waste my time that I find pleasure in that just aren't really eternally beneficial for me, aren't building me up? It's just, it's frustrating. There are a unique host of things that compete for relational affection to our glory. And God begins it by saying, first, don't you remember I'm the God who saved you? Don't you remember? I'm the God who who draw, gave you mercy, saved you from the slavery of sin, but also, He's the God that says, "I don't want you to keep putting me second in your life. I don't want you to put others before me in priority." And when we pick up the mirror, when we have the courage to pick up the mirror and honestly look at ourselves, it's hard to look at this man. And civically we need to only again pick up the big map. Think of our currency, which keeps getting printed with In God We Trust," and our political politicians will try to occasionally, when they give a public address, invoke the name of God, or as our current president says, "You know the thing. You know the thing." Because he knew the constituents he was talking to didn't really like God, and so he didn't want to embarrass himself by using the name of God in that moment. But look at this law cynically. What are the functional idols of America? Is our nation putting as priority our relationship with God? That's not going to cynically work out for us. It's not a good way of governance. It's not like we're going to come up with another recipe that's better. Secular humanism has been tried again and again, and it leads to gulons, it leads to murders, it leads to failures. It's why, for instance, the American Revolution cost a couple thousand lives, but the French Revolution, which was to human secularism, cost millions and millions of lives. Because when people are making the law, when they're just making it up, well, everything is on the table at that point. As John Adams, well put, and Bruce was teaching us to the high schoolers this week at Firm Foundation, our Constitution was made for a moral and religious people. Think of that, John Adams. dared to say, if you are not a religious person, the American Constitution really doesn't apply to you. It is wholly inadequate, he said, to the government of any other. But where have we been civically? I think we've been closer in our last decades and generations to be echoing what Don McLean once rightly summarized in his most popular ballad: Do you have faith in God above if the Bible tells you so? And what was the conclusion of that song? What did he see in society at that time, in that era? And frankly, from that era, It's continuing to grow and persist. He said of our triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, He took the last train toward the coast the day the music died. Well, I don't think those are scriptural words. They're a summation of the civic reality that we long ago stopped caring about putting God first, about giving God relational priority and His words and His moral order, and we're now experiencing the reality of that. It's not that God so much got on a train, but we wanted to put him on the train and send him away. We have a nation where now boldly advocates for its own destruction as a form of liberation. It boldly advocates for medical castration of minors, for civic morality and further liberation. It boldly advocates for defiance of God's order. And it says this is morally good. And all along the way, we show that not just our politicians, but the people who are like them, have a hollow relationship with God, no relationship at all, and there's no genuine love and priority, relational priority with God in people's lives throughout the land. So when we look at the first commandment, it hits us in many ways. It can hit us when we're talking about the nation. It can hit us when we talk about the household. How many households? that have surrendered themselves to no longer making God a priority, or it works at the individual level as well. And it is all a rebellious affront to God, and He will destroy our future if we do not repent. So where have our priorities been lately? Whose relationship reigns most supremely in our home? Whose mirror is our priority? Now for the second commandment. That one made the room a little quiet. This one will make everybody probably a little angry. First, a history lesson. Because I preach in the location that I'm at. We are in stained glass, surrounded by stained glass, and surrounded by the pictures of Jesus. The reality is, this church has about a 300-year history, and for 200 years, There was nothing on glass. We are, there was nothing there. And the reason why there probably was nothing there was not the Lutheran side, it was almost certainly the Reformed side, because the Reformed tradition has usually been a little more wary of having depictions of Jesus. And so, there's a couple of things we have to say. We're going to talk about the two views, the two biblical views that you can have, or it's biblical arguments that are within the reform camp on images like the ones that surround me. One's called prohibition view and one's called permissive view. But first, we're gonna we're gonna talk about what all biblical views will be common. They hold in common. First, all biblical views hold in common the following. Idolatry should be avoided and is always sinful. Images should never be worshipped. Images should never be worshipped. There are denominations that have elevated images to the point where they will worship them. They'll tell you they're not, but they'll worship them. And the Bible is emphatically clear, you're committing a sin that God hates. Both views agree on this. Both views agree on this. We also must confess, regardless of what overarching view you have on these images, images like these in this sanctuary have caused stumbling blocks for individuals in the faith. Regardless of your opinion on these images, the reality of having them is we all have to soberly, whatever side we fall on is, we all have to soberly realize images like these have caused people to sin in church history. It's undeniable. It's just a historical fact. We also all agree what God alone deserves it worship, not images. Another key point: even the best of images are utter garbage compared to what will be the reality of seeing our God, our Lord, Yeshua, face to face. And is undeniable. I just at the wedding, I was talking with Lisa Constantino, and she had the niceness to talk with me even though I had a bad outfit according to my life. And she was telling me that on a honeymoon that she was going to the Grand Canyon and she's never been there before. And I said that common phrase, and common refrain, that's if anybody's ever seen the Grand Canyon, you know that the images, the pictures of the Grand Canyon can never reach the surreal beauty of the Grand Canyon itself, the opening before your face. And so we agree on it. this is the non-negotiables. These are the things that when we see our Lord face to face, the beauty of even our favorite image, the most beautiful image, pales in comparison. But now let's talk about the two main views within the Reformed camp. And before I do that, I want to do a little warning here. I am guessing that quite a few of you already know if you have a permissive view or a prohibitive view view on images. I would guess, I don't know if I can quantify this, but I would guess I have studied Baptist theology on baptism more than what I believe, covenant baptism, that the children of believers that make a credible profession of the Lord can be baptized. But I would say more than even studying covenant baptism, I have probably studied believers baptism and read more material on that over the years. Why have I done it? I've done that in order to understand the view, so that I can be charitable when I consider those who hold the other view. And so if you came here and you, are the, you know you're the prohibition, these all would, the church would be a better place if these were all taken down. I want you to focus not on, not in agreement on the part you like, I want you to focus on being charitable to the other argument. I want to be charitable to Charles Spurgeon. He's possibly the best preacher ever lived, and he believed differently on me on baptism. And he believed that because he was biblically convinced that was the better argument. I don't agree with it, but I want to be charitable to him and at least know his argument. We should want the same thing here. So I guess what I'm asking you is to be more charitable in the position that you might not hold. Use it as a moment where you can learn maybe that what you've struggled to embrace. And so let's talk about the prohibition camp. There are varying degrees of this camp. Some camps will even say the cross itself is a problem. Honestly, the remainder of the book of Exodus and what happens immediately after these chapters will do damage to that because when God builds out his tabernacle, when God builds out his tabernacle temple, inside it looked like a garden temple. It looked like a garden. It looked like a new Eden. It looked like there was symbolism in everything that was being made. And the symbolism was supposed to draw people to the promises of the word. And so when it comes to the cross, the majority and, and symbols like the cross, while there are some prohibitionist people that will even include that, most have said, okay, certain symbols are all right. But Paul would look at verses like Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 15. You saw no form of any kind the day of the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, basically in this moment, out of the fire, that God didn't come to you with an image. So don't make an image of God. They'll look at passages like Exodus 32, 3 and 4, when people are taking off all their gold and giving it to Aaron so that they can make a golden calf to worship. They'll look at passages like verse 4 in our chapter here today. Then they look at passages like Isaiah 42, verse 8. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give no other, nor my praise to carved idols. In the New Testament, a popular verse they run to is God is spirit. By the way, I've helped both views in my lifetime. God, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. John chapter 4, verse 24. And so they would say the subtitle of Scripture is leading us to believe the following conclusions, and they'd add more, but images cannot properly represent the infinite glory of God. That there is such a limiting factor that this isn't just like a picture of the Grand Canyon. This is just like this is even beyond that. That we just shouldn't play around in it. And that actually, when we do depict God in images, the transcendence of God is compromised by visual depictions. Images also help shift focus from the instrument God primarily uses, which is His Word, and makes it into something visual. Seeing representations. It's a distraction from the Word. Imagination and creativity should be directed then at God's word, not art. But that becomes very difficult to sustain, musically at least, but they would say this more with visual art. And they would point out the fact, the historical fact, that church history shows the danger of icon and idolatry towards icon. All right, what about permissive argument? First off, they would look at the significant portion of the remainder of the book of Exodus, after this chapter as evidence God's going to get them building something. And everything He gets them to build is a sign or symbol of a theological truth about Him. For instance, again, the Holy of Holies, it will be like a garden-filled temple with light. In addition, we read from places such as Exodus 31, 3 and 4, the following. And I filled Him with the Spirit of God and the ability and intelligence with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs to work in gold, silver, and bronze. God actually inspires the artwork of the people of the Old Covenant that would be in the temple. And they would say, okay, we are people of the New Covenant. That is a new and better covenant. And you're trying to tell me that God doesn't, in the New Covenant, still inspire artistry and artwork? And they'll point out, for instance, in Romans chapter 1, how the whole world testifies of the reality of a creator, of the invisible qualities of God, we could read in Romans 1, so that everyone who is alive, they, they are forced to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They know there's a God. They know when they go outside, they know when they go to places like the Great Canyon, that there is a creator, that God is their creator. Another important point, and maybe I'll close on this one, is that in the full council of the Scriptures, and this is one of those moments where the Sunday school was very helpful. At times, items that weren't a depiction of God but who received receive the worship and reverence of God. In Sunday school we saw that it was the cloak that Jesus was wearing. Became a talisman at the end of Mark 6. But this happened with the staff, the serpent staff. It was destroyed under King Hezekiah because the people started to worship it. But that means that God allowed it to exist for 800 to 900 years as a symbol, pointing to the generosity, the salvation of God, and draw people in. And it wasn't destroyed by God until it became the object of worship. We also see this with the temple itself. For instance, uh, you can hear Jeremiah responding to his critics in Jeremiah chapter seven. Oh, we have the temple. Oh, we have the temple. Oh, we have the temple. When Jeremiah is pointing out the fact that, cynically, the law of God is being violated everywhere. And they're comfortable saying, see that building right there? That building gives us confidence. That building's what we worship. That building's what we care about. That building's what we come here for. That building allows us to know that we're God's people. And what does God do in the building? He tears it down. He hasn't torn down, utterly destroyed. Don't worship old god not been great Church, to building, structures, that's a danger here. you got some pretty cool buildings. Don't worship those. Use these buildings to worship God. But notice in the biblical reference, it's not so much the image, it's a worship of the image. As God. That's what God hates. And so that is a part of the permissive argument. And so the big picture is whatever you take out of here this morning, is your relationship with God a priority? Above all other priorities. Is your relationship with God the mirror by which and when you look at His law, you pick up that mirror and say, I want to look more like God wants me to look. And also, when you pick up His law, you look at God and say, God, I am so thankful for the fact that I keep stumbling through this life and You have already said I've saved You from the slavery of sin and You have covered me. You've covered me if I'm wrong about the permissive view or if I'm wrong about the televisionist view. You've covered me. Yeah. You have a relationship with God like These first two commandments have shown us that God is not open to debate about our priorities. Whether in action or relational. He's the God that wants Himself put first. And the reality is, why wouldn't we put it, put it first? He told us and reminded us in verse 2. And He told us last chapter. And frankly, we're going to read verses 1 and 2 every week we're in the law because He's the God that asks us, don't you remember what I've done for you? If you remember what I've done for you, you're going to want these other things. But it needs to start not like a rich young ruler. Not as some legal hurdle that we're trying to jump so we can be our own Savior. It needs to start... And the thankfulness of remembering the fact that He is the God of mercy, He is the God of salvation, He is the God who has saved us with His outstretched arm from the slavery which is near us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you that we, though also violators of your law, like David and look at your law and say, how lovely is your law? And desire to be the meditation of our heart. Please allow us this week, to occasionally pick up that mirror, to look at the law and to look at ourselves and to say, Lord, I was made for more and I know you saved me for more and help us to be more faithful. Also, allow us to look for opportunity in the civic realm to understand that this was a law given not just to people of Israel, but it was a law given to the world, a standard to the world, that in those in which seeds have been sown, Lord, in our communities, or those who need seeds sown by in our communities, that might happen, and that your spirit might work, and your spirit might save. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now let us take a moment to privately look in the mirror and confess our sins to the Lord.